was a lion in the tall grass. Wish I had a pilot on a podcast. Wish I had a strong donkey that can holler ass and travel with portable speakers playing bars scats. Wish I had a million dollars. I wish I had a million albums. I wish I had a million problems. That way I couldn't pinpoint all one million outcomes. I wish I found a genie lamp. I wish them girls gave me them sugar like Beanie Man. Yeah. I wish I was a comedian. Late night sitcom syndicated on TV land. I wish this well had water in it. These kids are stealing all my pennies. Focused on my wealth. You can help me wish, but I would rather wish for help. It's like, it's like, I wish, I wish. And every time he's loving, it feels just like this. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of The Debrief. We timed this a little funny today, so the live video premiere of this episode is just finishing up with a few more minutes left. So I'm going to go ahead and play that until the end, give us a little bit of time to fill the room and get situated. And then we're going to do super rapid fire today because I'm afraid I only have an hour due to my mother dropping through D.C. today. Um, but So let's get right to it. Oh, my God, we've misunderstood our own people. We've misunderstood the strength of the left. The left is twice the size of the right. We were told the left is disappearing. The right is the great opposition. That's all gone. You're not going to hear that anymore because that's just not true. And mm-hmm. France is not a minor player in Europe. France and Germany are the core of the European system. And so one of the two cores just checked out. By the way, the Germans don't want any part of this stuff with the Ukraine. They won't say that yet, but they will. And, and, and America, that's the trouble. Americans live in a kind of bubble that makes me worried when some of these fantasies get broken by some hard reality, like this election in France. I don't know how Americans are going. They don't have the apparatus with which to understand what's going on. And that that's kind of scary, you know. I, I almost rather that they have a, a perspective I can argue with, but to be lost because they feel overwhelmed, uh, you know, very yeah, the, Amer- the American left is basically invisible to the mainstream penetry. And occasionally, I don't know, like a Van Jones will make half a point on MSNBC and it trends on Twitter because it's so unusual for anyone to articulate any part of a left perspective and everyone else in the panels with him kind of stares at him bug-eyed because they just fully don't understand the words that are coming out of his mouth. And you saw it, you saw it with Bill Maher and Crystal Ball. He, he seemed not to be able to process who she was or where she was coming from, even enough to make jokes at her expense. At one point he's like, but you're not a real leftist. And she's like, what are you talking about? I, I am a Bernie leftist. And, and you could see that he thought that because she has made some criticisms from the left of the Democratic Party and has criticisms of weaponized identity politics and a lot of the superficial virtue signaling that the Democratic Party does, he's only familiar with a conservative approach to those kinds of issues. And he truly, like, we're just so, so misunderstood. But I love to hear you say that if French leftists can overcome their deep-seated um, long-standing issues and find solidarity that gosh darn it we can end the feud between tyt and jimmy Dore <laughs> and have a united left and and have some progress in this country as well I, i've kept you for about an hour i do want to just come back to this one question of what you think is going on with people like your classmate janet yellen why do you think it is that they're taking the approach that they're taking right now is it just industry capture is it something more or less insidious than that no, I think it's basically they have 
they've made their, they've made their choices. We were all graduate students together. We all had roughly comparable records, roughly comparable opportunities. Uh, and she went with the profession. By the way, the, the, the left end of the to be fair to her, the left end of the, of the profession, which usually gets the name Keynesian economics. And, you know, it, it's, it's luminaries or people like uh, Kenneth, John Kenneth Galbraith, the people like that. Um, but those of us like me, we kept asking the same question. Why are we capitalists? Mm. What would be the alternative to capitalism? Why wouldn't that be better? And our professors were so frightened by the question. And I liked a lot of them. I didn't want to make their lives hard. I was just asking my question. But I could read the fear. That's the Cold War. People have to understand we are, whether we like it or not, product of what happened in this country from 1946-47, basically to the end of the century. The second half of the 20th century, there was a level of repression. I could not get answers to my question. My professors would say to me, look, uh, why don't we discuss this? Come see me in my office hours. You could talk about this. Truth of it was, they were scared there too. They and they were scared, and I understood why. I'm a student. I don't know what's all at stake. So if they say something to me, I'm going to then repeat it to, to my boyfriend or my girlfriend or whoever, and it's going to go around. And who knows who's going to hear what version? They didn't. This is, could kill your career. It could kill your future. Um, I, I was always part of the Ivy League, where these questions of going up the ladder are very crucial to everybody, etc., etc., etc. So I, you know, I, I after a while I stopped asking. I just read the books myself. I, I found a few friendly souls and we studied stuff together. Um, and that's I ended up being a critic of capitalism. But I got to tell you, I feel stronger in that critical perspective than I ever have. And while I'm a small fish in this pond, the explosion of interest in the democracy at work stuff that I do. I, I'm amazed. I just I, I get up in the morning and I do that pinching, you know, the pinching of your arm skin because you, you're kind of wondering whether you're awake or dreaming all of this. So I do three or four interviews a day. I do them with pretty much across the board. Um, I never expected, as an American who grew up in this whole situation, I never expected to have audiences beyond. 30 or 40 young people in a classroom in a university. That's my life. I now have audiences, you know, in the millions. And, and it's just, it's an amazing, it's an amazing ride for me. I look, I have my down moments like everybody else. I'm frustrated. It's going too slow. On the other hand, you know, it is going. And that election in France, oh, I'm not even talking with you about the election in Colombia, which is very important also. Very important. These, Colombia is the oldest, staunchest ally of the United States in all Latin American dealings, whether it be with Cuba yeah. or Venezuela or Brazil. And, you know, there's all kinds of problems, but the wind is blowing in a very particular direction. But, but this, this, this is the thing, Professor Wolf. Like, people want to have a sense of connecting the dots, what that means for Americans next. You have uh, a populace that's not as primed as 
the, the French population to striking and protesting and throwing on a yellow vest and, you know, uh, turning over and burning a bunch of trash cans and dumping a truck full of manure on the front of the parliament or whatever. You know, right. that's not our vibe. Right. Uh, this past weekend in DC, uh, you know, on the 18th was the big, uh, people, poor people's campaign. Right. And I don't know. I didn't see any coverage of it. Yeah. I, it might as well have never happened. I mean, I don't, I don't mean, I don't say that to denigrate, obviously the, the right. people who planned it. But in terms of the uh, ability for events like that to make a dent in the American public sphere, it seems very, very difficult. Um, you have, at, you know, the, at the government openly saying that the left branch of our political party, uh, our political representation saying that the, the way to get out of inflation is to crush American workers <laughs> and, and create high unemployment. Right. At the same time, when we do have a, a somewhat a little surge in labor activism and everyone's very excited about the Amazon um, right. union efforts and all of those kinds of things. But you're not seeing the response to that being something along the lines of, okay, you want to create unemployment? I'll show you unemployment. We're going to have these entire sectors stop working until you have a different kind of economic approach, right? But who could possibly say that? Who's Who is even there to fill that rhetorical void and say those kinds of things? All due respect to William Barber and the People's March, they're not saying things like that. Nope. You know, you've, you've got London, the whole transit system is shut down, you know, because those workers are advocating for that. I can't imagine something like that happening in the United States where what we should be doing, arguably, is having free public transportation as something that's supposed to that could that could help alleviate the oil crisis. By the way, a number of European cities are doing that, have done that, yeah. are doing that, make, make public, you know, the subways are free, the buses are free and all of that. I think... And I, I don't say this lightly. I think that's all coming. I really think it's all coming. And I won't be surprised if it comes very fast. And so we'll all say we're surprised, but I don't think so. I think the fact that you could, as succinctly as you just did, rattle off what we need, that means we're half there. Mm. That clarity, that we need to be able to do that. Here's what's missing for the Poor People's Campaign. The public recognition, the public inspiration, the follow-up. We all know. The French knew. They told themselves, you know, we get crappy votes because we're all divided. They told themselves that for 30 years. When they finally had a way to get together, it's better than anything they hoped for. You know, there's a mm. very famous leader who was approached by his followers, political leader. And they said, oh, it's, everything's taking so long. It's, so, takes, it's going so slowly. And he looked at them and he said, you know, for decades, nothing happens. And then in a few weeks, decades happen. That's my sense of where we are. And my life, just as one little piece of evidence, my life as someone articulating a different way of understanding the capitalist system, uh, explodes in terms of the audience that seems to be out there. We don't have the resources to go get them. They come to us, but they're coming. Mm. Well, Professor Wolf, I very much hope you're right. And to the extent that all right, I will cut Professor Wolf off there. Um, I just wanted to give the people who I know are watching, and I told to come over 
from uh, to call in from YouTube. I wanted to make sure that I didn't uh, have them double booked and it got us a chance to fill up the room. And let's just get right to the callers. You know how this works. Get in the queue. I will uh, have some preference for the beginning of the line, but we'll be jumping around. Let's hear from you, Linda. What's on your mind? Hey, Brie, can you hear me? I can. I can. So I just wanted to share um, a bit about these uh, stimulus and inflation stuff from a South African perspective. So in about like mid-2020, we also had like a big stimulus package. Majority of it went to the banks so that the banks could guarantee people's mortgages and people's loans and things like that. There was a small portion that went to strictly people who are unemployed, but those people got like very, very, very small amounts of money um, per month. And then for the people who were employed, you were only you could only access the the stimulus to cover whatever salary cut you got from the pandemic. So for instance, if you were making 5,000 Rand a month and your company cut it down to 3,000 Rand a month, you could only claim 2,000 Rand from the stimulus to basically make up um, what you were earning pre-pandemic. So mm-hmm. in terms of like the, big, the bigger stimulus, only a small portion was physical cash in people's pockets and mm-hmm. a large bit of it went, went to corporates. And we unfortunately find ourselves in the very same place as America where our inflation has skyrocketed the cost of living is ridiculously high. People can literally hardly afford, afford food. What I used to spend um, like a thousand rand on food now costs me like about 2,000 rand or 1,500 rand. The price of petrol, which you guys call gas, is sky high as well. People literally cannot afford to get to work. So the so I, I agree with what the analysis of the left has been broadly in terms of saying that much of the the cause of inflation from an American perspective is because of the money that was given to corporates and not necessarily money in people's pockets because in South Africa, in as much as not not a lot of people got money in the pockets, but we still find ourselves with the with the huge bit of inflation. So that's just what I wanted to add on that. Well, I appreciate uh, that insight. It's always nice to hear, even if you know the outcomes aren't good, that there's some validation for our concerns uh, in other in other contexts across the world. Tell me this. Uh, first, Linda, I'm hearing a little bit of my own voice back. Am I on speakerphone? Um, no, you're not. I have my headphones on, but I can switch them off. Okay, that might be, or yeah, that might that might help. Um, tell me this: Is there any conversation about uh, price price controls or anything like that in South Africa right now? Um, there there have been like a couple of protests with regards to the gas price. Um, but from a government perspective, basically the government has just said, hey, listen, the cost of petrol is the cost of petrol. There isn't really much that um, we can do about that. There really isn't, from a government perspective, doesn't look like there are any plans to try and cut the cost of gas or to even um, like help people out in a material way in terms of like the general cost of living. I heard that there was going to be um, um, a reinitiation of the program where they would give cash to people who are unemployed. Um, but I don't know if that's actually going to go through. I just heard that the government was thinking of um, reinstating re-in- that, that kind of social program. But in terms of like the actual in terms of how the government is going to try to help people keep up with the cost of living, there isn't really um, anything that they are willing or prepared to do. Mm. I'm just so curious because I obviously try to read up on the history of price controls. 
you know, there's plenty to be found or people criticize them, but they're often like, you know, Reason Magazine, the Brookings Institution, like all the usual suspects saying all of the reasons why they don't think it's a good idea and it's mostly, you know, capitalism. And so I, I'm open to the idea that there are good reasons to be concerned about that approach, but it's just difficult to find kind of good faith critique. And then just now today, I found an article in the Wall Street Journal, which is not exactly a liberal rag. I mean, it's not it's not a progressive rag. It's what you know we would describe as a neoliberal rag that is actually kind of supportive, you know, and says, you know, well, in World War One, controls helped cut wholesale price inflation to 7.1% annually from 32.4%. Um, price controls on essentials like food and fuel can be a way to break the public expectation and fear that the cost of living has to keep climbing. Um, inflation also skyrocketed. Uh, they talk about uh, during World War One and World War Two. Government agencies engaged thousands of local volunteers to roam through communities investigating prices and behavior. In 1943, pleasure, pleasure driving was banned, and police pulled thousands of people over. Drivers had to explain to the Federal Office of Price Administration why their trips were necessary. Well, I don't know about all that, but um, you know, it, it it's it's basically the t- the title of this article is an old way to fight inflation gets new fans. Um, and that saying that it's, it's a price price control sometimes works. So I don't know. I just it's very curious to me that the conversation isn't happening at all in the United States, and we're all just talking endlessly about this gas tax holiday, like that's the limit of the public ima- imagination. Be, yeah, that can, it cannot I mean, be that. Yeah, go ahead. On 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 our side, the only the only time when things like price control come into effect. So we have um, an office called the Competition Commission, which basically investigates um, whether or not uh, businesses are engaging in fair pricing or if they're not. Well, they, they only get involved if there's a suspicion that big businesses are colluding to um, inflate prices. That's the only time really. And if, if, even in that sense, if the Competition Commission does find that a group of businesses in a certain industry were colluding to fix prices or to raise prices, the only thing that really happens is that they'll fine those businesses like a huge sum of money, but then they, isn't really, um, they, they aren't really forced to bring down the price. So, mm-hmm. and, and, and I think that that's really the only system of price control that we have in place is if businesses collude to fix prices, mm-hmm. which is, which also has a high standard of proof because you have the competition commission has to be able to prove that these businesses have colluded for the purpose of price fixing. Whereas in this time and age, they can simply just say, Hey, listen, there are, you know, supply constraints, the, the price of, um, Gas has skyrocketed, so we have no choice but to to keep raising prices, which also, you know, is it really true? We don't really know. Yeah, and I did also see someone say that, you know, Nixon implemented both price controls and uh, price caps and wage caps at the same time. And that part of the issue was that the wage caps were enforced much more harshly than the price caps, which... It's obviously going to exacerbate the problem for working people. So I, I'm really interested. Like if there are legitimate criticisms of how these things have been implemented in the past, let's talk about them because I'm not afraid of the criticism. We'll just rehabilitate the flaws. You know, let's talk about it. Yeah. We'll fix the flaws and let's move forward because this this gas holiday ain't it. Thank you for calling in. I really appreciate you. Thank you so much, Bree. All right. Eric Gray. How you doing, cousin Eric? I'm good. What's on your um, mind this afternoon? Oh, <laughs> uh, I, you know, listening to this interview and the one Jordan did with Rich Wolf yesterday, 
Um, it's an understatement to say our 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 government is a unique version of incompetent, and we're not even that. Just outright not understanding history. Now, Richard Woods brought up the ration cards. He's brought up the wage price freezes. I'm like, we have all these. We have these methods that have been done. They've had their issues, but they've been done. It's not like we don't have a way to deal with inflation. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, it's 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 ridiculous to say the least. And let any mainstream media voice here, let any mainstream media pundit let Rich Wolf on their channel? No. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, O2 is uh. And to the point about the um, the left too, um, uh, the European left coming actually coming together, uh, that might not happen with this left, at least not yet. Why do you, Why don't you think so? Um, well, not yet. There's still. I mean, we're kind of an immature left compared to the rest. Compared to like internationally speaking, so there, I mean, everybody has their everybody has their standards, and rightfully so. And when you talk about like what exactly is left in this country, you are you already have people already confused. Like they, most people see social democrats as left, even though. You ask a lot of us, they're like, oh, hell no. They're center right at best. Um, like, you know, the distinction, the distinction I make sometimes with being on the anti-capitalist left. And all in all, we really should be making these issues class issues, but hey, I'm just another person on the internet with an opinion, right? Yeah, I mean, I think that that might be you know, it might be true, but I also am, a, I'm always just a little wary of the potential for realism, you know, or pessimism or, you know, being, uh, derailing in some sorts of way. And I don't, I don't say I want to indulge in a kind of false hope, but there have been enough moments where we've been surprised by the possibility of, a united left and achieving more in terms of progressive gains than we ever expected. I wasn't sitting around in 2017 imagining that we were going to get the gains that felt so important in 20 in the 2018 midterm election or that Bernie Sanders was ever going to run to begin again, to be honest, I didn't even think that was the case. And you can sit here and say, well, none of that amounts to anything. So whatever. And, you know, sure. Maybe that's true, but you know, I, I am heartened by some of the realignments that are happening politically. And obviously it could go fascist, <laughs> Um, but it could go our way. And that's why I think it is so important to have Richard Wolf out here. And like the next time a congressperson is willing to come on the show, I'd love to ask them why they haven't entertained some of the options that Richard Wolf has been talking about. I'm looking forward to crystal ball and others getting more opportunities to mainstream some of these ideas. And, you know, what do you, what else is there, but to, but to hope, but I appreciate you calling in cousin Eric. No problem. Appreciate All right. It. Yeah. Have a good one. Keep the faith. Let's go to Andrew. Yeah, she's skipping around. Look alive. Look alive. You're not safe in the back of the line. Unmute yourself and let me know what's on your mind, Andrew. Andrew. You got hey. Oh, there you go. All right. Can you hear me? I can hear you. What's on your mind? 
Um, no, well, uh, sorry, wasn't ready. Um, <laughs> uh, I thought the interview with uh, Richard Wolf was was one of the better interviews I've heard with him in a while, so that was great. Um, and I wanted to encourage you uh, not to read Marx, to continue <laughs> to not read Marx. Um, you know, all respect due to Professor Wolf. Um, but what I kind of wanted to ask you about was your, you recently did a interview with Coleman Hughes, or you were on his show. Yeah, that was um, maybe month. Yeah, ago. it was a while ago, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but I thought it was a pretty interesting conversation. I don't know how you felt about it, but um, I specifically wanted to ask you about um, if it's okay for me to change the topic a little bit. Sure, uh, go for it. Um, he kind of you. There was like a a moment where you were talking about sort of like people's material conditions, and he was sort of identifying those as culture um if that is ringing any bells i think you guys were talking about like education and people's desire for education and stuff like that um, yeah it's, it's vaguely familiar i mean i had a similar exchange with uh glenn lowry yeah and we it, it eventually can become kind of semantic but i think my argument was that some of the things that he's describing as culture and kind of quote unquote black cultural deficiencies or what have you. Not that he said those words, but that's how it's often mm. framed. You know, are first of all, even if even if that was a thing that existed at this kind of uniform uniform culture, I don't know what you do about that as a society, especially as a conservative who doesn't think the state should get involved in kind of like administrating the culture of a household. Second of all, to the extent that there are things to do that can encourage the kind of, you know, family relationships and um, living conditions in the household that studies have shown create good outcomes in kids, like having a parent who's home when the kid gets off of school or having a two-parent household and two incomes in the house, i.e. just having a lot of money. Um, you know, having nutritious food in the house, all of these kinds of things. Well, then those are like material things that you got to do to set that up. So why are we even talking about this weird amorphous cultural thing, which is, is totally stigmatizing. It doesn't change anybody to say, Hey, improve your culture, bucko. Why not just, I don't know, make sure that people can survive once again on a one income so that a parent that wants to stay home can stay home or be more flexible with um, maternity leave and the ability to work from home create cities where people don't have as long commutes, make sure that, you know, the social safety net doesn't have people living in substandard housing conditions, you know, don't get rid of some of these work requirements that make single mothers have to work outside of the house and then have inadequate or very expensive childcare because their pay is very, is is barely more than what they're paying their childcare providers. And it's not that I am like somehow allergic. I think people were framing me as, you know, the culture argument isn't good for her, so she's a- avoiding it or something. I mean, like, we can sit here. It doesn't hurt me for someone to sit here and say black culture is stupid and bad. Because, one, it's not true. You just look racist. I'm sorry. Like, I'm black, <laughs> and I'm doing pretty well, and I grew up in a very black culture. So we obviously have very different definitions of what that is and what that can mean. 
you are trying to attribute a bunch of negative characteristics to blackness. And I reject that, but you can do that if you want to do it. All I really care about in the context of a conversation like that is what you're going to do about it. Because if you're just going to sit up there and fear monger and hand wring and try to castigate an already stigmatized population, I don't really have a lot of utility for that. I mean, do it. It's a free country, but I don't know why I'm here for that conversation. I'm here for a conversation about proactively how to change the materials conditions of these people because I don't I don't have interest in stigmatizing them or any other community. JD Vance does this to white people, to poor white people. I'm not, I don't have any interest in stigmatizing any of these communities. I'm trying to help them. So, okay, granted, everybody's t terrible trash, whatever, whatever. They're human beings. I love them and I want them to be better. So what are we going to do? Yeah. Yeah. I just, yeah, I thought that was, sorry. I, I guess there was some sort of, I'm not on Twitter or online at all or anything. So I guess there was probably some uh, reaction to it afterwards, but um, no, I did think it was pretty chill. Yeah. Um, yeah. All right. Yeah. I mean, I just thought it was an interesting sort of moment when, when I guess he realized that what he thought of his culture was like different from, I guess, what people, you know, I guess what I guess people on the left um, are normally talking about when they when they identify culture. Um, yeah, the the was, unintended benefit of talking in material terms is that you cut through all of that, that bullshit, and like uh -huh. those wishy washy definitions kind of cease to matter in some ways. Yeah. Yeah. I, I didn't know if you had 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 time to think about it since then. And um thought about, I guess, just ways of communicating around it, um, kind of like you did with the, the dog whistle thing, I, I guess, on Rising. Because um, I, I suspect that that's like a confusion that a lot of people, probably, especially more conservative people, but probably even people on the left have about just like what people are talking about when we talk about, you know, like social programs or like why, why we think people aren't doing well, you know, mm -hmm. I don't know. Um, yeah. I mean, to be honest, I don't even really hear, and maybe it's because I'm in my bubble, people talk about culture all that much anymore. So I haven't given it a lot of thought. It's not something that I would think about doing a radar on because it doesn't seem to really be part of people's political decision-making process. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I mean, I thought it was a good conversation. And I, I, I got to say, I do really enjoy talking to black conservatives because I do feel like, I don't know, there's some kind of simpatico there gains to trade where I can, we can, we can, I think sometimes better come to a better good faith disagreement. Cause I'm not, you know, they're not like secretly gonna hit me with, Oh, but is racism even real? <laughs> you know, like there's, we have certain agreed to terms that can make the conversation more substantive, but yeah. Yeah, I'm glad, I'm glad you listened to it and thank you for calling. Yeah. No problem. Thanks a lot. All right. How about Raya Doe? What's on your mind this evening? Hi, can you hear me? I can hear you. Oh, wow. Uh, it's amazing talking to you. I'm really nervous, but uh, thank you for pulling me up. No, you got this, Raya. What's on your mind? <laughs> um, I don't have a specific question per se, but in the episode, you talked about how public transport in I think it was the UK has been mm -hmm. free for to kind of offset the um, gas increases. It, and I don't think it wasn't. Yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Well, and it just kind of reminded me of some of the earlier conversations you had about climate. And so my kind of like topic of interest that I'd just like to hear your take on would be kind of 
like types of um, solutions like that that are relevant now to dealing with inflation and tied with like the kind of labor movements that are growing on the left and um, like the successes in France and Colombia and how those types of trends on the left more so how those might kind of tie in with climate sorry I know that's a little bit messy okay so I, I mean the, the question is how the the kind of sort of electoral successes on the on the left is are going to tie in to climate climate activism so, more mm-hmm. so like these kind of trends that are happening on the left in terms of like the recent successes in Colombia and France as well as the kind of left response to inflation how like do you see any ties with that and the climate movement well it be, would be nice if there were it would be nice if there were any space to be talking about how you know, as Bernie Sanders said and, and got laughed at for saying in 2016 on the debate stage that the biggest kind of national threat we face is the environmental crisis and our oil, oil dependency, and then that's a, a foreign policy issue. It would be nice if, as we were all talking about the frustration with the money that's flowing freely to Ukraine and the lack of domestic spending and the neutering of Build Back Better, in particular its climate um, goals, that we could tie these things together and, and be making the case right now for why exactly we should decouple from oil. Um, but there isn't really space for that. And to the extent that there's any ideological simpatico over, let's say, Ukraine with some conservatives, they are absolutely not interested in this climate agenda. There has been, you know, when, when I got the thing about the, um, the free transit from a really terrific guest we had on Rising on Wednesday, I think, or maybe it was Tuesday. And, you know, she was pointing this out and it hadn't even occurred to me. And then I thought, well, how ridiculous that it hadn't even occurred to me. And I haven't really heard anybody in these left spaces I'm immersed in talking about the fact that we should be advocating for free public transportation in a moment like this. And in fact... The reality, what it feels like is that if we were to do something like that, we would we would get the the strike that's happening in the London transit system kind of thrown in our face to say, oh, well, these systems are barely sustainable as it is. And now you want people to ride for free? How dare you? Right. It, it, that that kind of feels like the tug of war we're in. Um, and it's frustrating. I, I mean, I just was scrolling the timeline and saw an article just now saying, you know, just in case you need a reminder, you know, the whomever, I forget who issued the report, said that we're, you know, we're nowhere near the emission standards required to avoid uh, the tipping point for climate catastrophe. Just an FYI, that's still a thing that's happening. And it's frustrating. It's frustrating to hear all of this. We're going to have a World War II style ramp up for COVID, a World War II style ramp up for this, that, and the other. But when anyone actually talks about things that involve self-sacrifice, folks go silent. I mean, Glenn, Glenn Greenwald was tweeting today. And I've seen some other people make the point about um, the upcoming famine, yay, uh, and how why we should be having more conversations about why we eat so much meat, uh, given that so much grain goes to feeding animals and it's not efficient energy production, and also how much of our grain goes to making, um, or how much of our corn, rather, goes to making corn oil and other kinds of uh, products that are not sufficient, uh, not efficient. Use, uses of food and um, land. 
and, and it's true. Even the left, you know, I, I'm, I'm guilty. I'm not even having those kinds of conversations. Not that it should be like on an individual personal level that I'm just like not going to eat chicken today. But as a community, you know, Joe Biden seems to be looking for some kind of weird consensus building interventions that are also very minor. And it's like if you're going to try for something that's not even probably going to pass because you can't even get solidarity behind a gas tax holiday. You, and you're going to lose the election anyway, and you're going to lose midterm anyway. Like, would it be the worst things to start trying to mainstream some ideas that actually distinguish what it means to be a Democrat from a Republican more than, you know, they hate trans people and Democrats only hate trans people a little bit? <laughs> Sorry, feeling a little dark. I don't know. What do you think, Raya? Um, yeah, I also really wish that there was space um, to have those discussions. And if you did an episode on food security, I think that would be fantastic and really interesting um, topic. Um, I don't know. I don't really no thoughts, just also feelings of uh, things are a little scary in the world right now. Um, and the, I guess the last thing I would just throw in there is Ben Norton has been doing really good stuff on Columbia. So if you're looking for someone on that. Um, well, I will be interviewing him and another panelist tomorrow for Monday's episode. So if you haven't already subscribed, <laughs> there's there is some inducement to do so. That'll that'll be Monday's Monday's bad faith. So thank you for that, Raya. Amazing. Thanks so much. All right. Take care. OK, Samuel, you are up next. What is on your mind? Hello, you there? I am there. Oh, great. I have a little trouble with my phone, but uh, it's wonderful to talk with you again. I think I, I called in a few weeks ago, and I'll just say again, your work is all fantastic. Uh, I loved your conversation with Richard Wolf. Your interview with Ro Khanna was perfect. I think I tweeted this, you're the best interviewer currently working, I think. Oh, that was you. <laughs> you're a doll. Thank you, Samuel. That's very sweet of you to say. I'm sort of becoming one of your reply guys. <laughs> no shame um, in that. <laughs> <laughs> as long as it's good things. But uh, it sort of relates. I had a few things I was hoping to comment on. And again, I'll try to go through them and not take long. But one of them is I told my friend Michael, last time I called in, I told my friend Michael, I called your after show. And he said, did you ask her how she manages to be the only sane person in America? And that is something we always say to each other. The only sane person in America is Brianna Joy Gray. <laughs> but <laughs> sort of relating to that, you produce so much content. I just wanted to say you produce so much content and you're very analytical and you're very careful about your principles and you do all these interviews. And I will just say from my point of view, you interview interesting people who have different valuable things to say but I think some of them sometimes are kind of ornery <laughs> and you're very firm and you stay really calm. And uh, I think if I did half of what you're doing, I would have completely lost my mind by now. I would have had a stroke. Uh, so that's sort of my question is, do you, I know you mentioned at some point a while ago, maybe taking a break. Uh, I mean, do you ever worry that you're just going to like flip out maybe live in an interview, lose your cool how do you do it? Well, I think you're being a little overly generous to me because I lost my cool a little bit today <laughs> on Rising. I lost my cool with Charlie Kirk. I have well, I not been exercising diligently. 
<laughs> since I joined rising, like I used to do a, um, since spring of last year, I have been forcing myself to do some small amount of exercise every single day. So even if it's just running down to the gym and running one mile in my building, that at least is like the, I do it every day. Like I break a sweat every day and that's been going on for over a year until I joined the Hill. And now there are at least like two or three days a week that I miss. And maybe that doesn't sound like the worst, but there's something about having it every day that is a like pace setter. It makes me feel like I accomplished something. And also that's when I listen to music and I'm not listening to podcasts or somebody else's um, YouTube show. And otherwise I never listen to music and I'm never alone with my own thoughts. And that's not exactly constructive. <laughs> so I've been missing yeah. it. And I was just thinking to myself, like, even though by the time you finish this and by the time your mom leaves, you're going to be tired. You really need to get your tuchus up and, and run a mile. But I'm fine. Yeah. Everything, everything's fine. And I generally feel broadly feel very grateful to be doing this. There's just some moments where, you know, you know, let's say one of my co-hosts does a, a radar on, on rising and I have, I don't know about that subject. It's something that's now just kind of come up out of the blue and I'll be thinking to myself, Oh, I wish I knew more or like the way I structure bad faith. I bring on guests that, that compensate for my lack of knowledge on a subject area. So I don't feel the pressure to, to have the take or the opinion and rising. Sometimes there's guests. Sometimes the guests aren't necessarily issue area experts though. And then I'm like, ugh. then this is, I have an obligation then to really just become the issue area expert on everything. And it's just not possible. I can't become a gun expert and an expert on each of these Supreme court cases. And da, da, da. so today we had Eric Siegel on, you know, who's been on bad faith a number of times. And I was so grateful to be able to defer to him and ask him to explain um, the freedom of religion case in Maine. Like it was like such a relief to be able just to say, to ask the questions and know that the guest is capable of answering them and it really knows this stuff. And you can ask him the negative hypothetical and like steal man the argument and know that he has a response. Like that's such a beautiful thing. And so I'm hoping to do more of that on rising and that will make that feel a little less um, onerous. But generally speaking, you know, it's, it's a, it's a mitzvah to have all of these um, spaces to be in. So I appreciate you for calling in to listen and for listening, Samuel. I also like your uses of Yiddish. Uh, where did you get that? <laughs> I don't know. I've always done it since I was a kid. It's such a weird thing. And like people have started to call me out on it. Cause like, obviously I record it a lot now and I, I don't know how to explain it, but you know, um, you know, one of my Jewish friends I've been hanging out with here in DC is like, like, this is getting weird. I'm like, no, it's not because of you. I promise. Like, it's, it's not because I'm hanging out with you. And he's just like, gives me these looks. I'm like, I don't, I don't know. I don't know what to tell you. I don't like this. Is there a better word for this? Tell me the better word for this. I can't help it. If this is an excellent and very expressive language. Some of them are irreplaceable words. So it must be, it must be some Kabbalistic magic. But, uh, <laughs> But I was hoping to comment on one other thing that came up a while ago, but I don't want to take too long. I know you want to get to a lot of people. Sure. But, Let, um, well, we'll make it we'll make it brief, but sure. Yeah, I wanted to just say a little bit about reparations. I mean, I know I think it's wonderful that you're thinking about doing another episode on housing. I know you have plenty of subjects to get through, but someone suggested a few weeks ago talking about reparations, and I think it might be helpful. I Personally, I completely support reparations. I think it's completely a matter of principle. You know, if, and the principle is if you steal something, 
and then you get caught, you give it back. I just think it's a totally straightforward matter. And I think people get confused. They think it's like, oh, this is identity politics or, and I, I just don't see it that way at all. And, you know, for one thing, there are sort of two just basic reasons. One is that I'm Jewish and we know that Germany has done a lot and paid a lot of reparations. Mm -hmm. and they, uh, reckoned over the past few decades has really reckoned with taking responsibility for what the nation of Germany did or what was done in the name of Germany. Mm -hmm. And no amount of reparations can undo what happened. But I do think it has broadly affected the way Jewish people think about the German people and the German nation today, that we shouldn't hold it against them. I mean, we do to some degree, obviously, but, but nonetheless, yeah, that you I'm, I'm still a little salty. <laughs> yeah, which is, which is totally reasonable, but there's a sense that we shouldn't treat Germany today as a pariah because they have tried to come to terms. And even though the reparations, it's only so much, it shows that they have taken responsibility and are trying to make recompense. So I just totally agree that I think America is kind of in this spiritual quandary. You know, I agree with Marianne Williamson that like, there's a lot of bad conscience, you know, and I think a lot of people who just immediately reject the idea of reparations, I think there's a lot of bad conscience there that they kind of don't want to deal with all of our history and they don't want to think about it. Um, yeah, and, I, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. I was just going to say the other thing is that I think I'm just, I'm a little unusual, I think, among leftists in some ways. And one of them is that I'm a fairly patriotic American. I mean, I guess that's normal among many leftists, but not others. Um, and I love our history and I love everything that's good and inspiring. I love the American Revolution. Sometimes people are kind of shocked by that, that like, because I try to be balanced in the way I describe history. But you know, I admire a lot of what our predecessors did, but you can't fully enjoy that and own it unless you also own the bad, you know. And yeah, and at least that, whatever, however you feel about that rhetorically, I found that to be very successful. Charlie Kirk really in that debate set out to say to me, you hate America. You are unwilling to say anything good about the founders. And I said, tell me, set a clock and tell me for how many minutes you want to say good things about the founders. I'm down. And then we'll say some true bad things about the founders too. And we'll, we'll be able to see how much is that I'm, whether it's I'm unwilling to say good things about the founders or that you're unwilling to acknowledge anything at all bad about the founders. Um, and, you know, we got somewhere with that toward the end of the conversation. There was some, you know, I think that he liked just like superficially the optics that of the fact that I was, making reference or, or trying to appeal to him on the basis of what's in the Federalist Papers or whatever, even though like, I personally don't care. I understand that other people care. I've been trying to put in my radars, you know, like this country, you yeah. know, I did the, I did a radar on the um, ban on uh, or, or the, the, the Eighth Circuit saying that it's not uh, constitutionally, uh, boycotts aren't constitutionally pr protected. BDS isn't. And uh, I was like, well, our country was founded on boycotts. You know, you're a patriot. You love you love the Tea Party. <laughs> you know, saying saying things boycotts. like that. Yeah, sorry, sorry. Oh, we invented boycotts. 
That's yeah, like it's it's a national <laughs> put a national pride and at least force them to confront the inconsistency with which they're applying these founding father ideals. But um, that's yeah. a whole other podcast, and I'm sure at one point I'll get sure, into all right. of the new Supreme Court cases. But I appreciate you calling in. And you take a break whenever you need. <laughs> well, I think okay. I am going to France next month and definitely taking a break from rising. I was going to maybe try to just advance record bad face, but we'll see. We'll see what I've, we'll see what I can we, do. We will be we'll patient. See. We will be patient. <laughs> I promise. <laughs> I appreciate you, Samuel. Keep the faith. Thank you. You too. All right, Sean, you're up next. What's on your mind this afternoon? Hi, uh, how's it going? Uh, I, I was actually, love Richard Wolf, by the way. I think the dude's amazing. But I've been kind of thinking kind of recently about kind of the nature of our political system and one of the major mechanisms that is kind of used within it to kind of control the population, namely that being that I, I think that money is our actual form and functional government. And I kind of want to get your thoughts on it. Uh, I did miss this Richard Wolf uh, podcast that you just did, but I catch him a good amount. But what I really kind of wanted to talk about is just kind of get your thoughts on just kind of the reality of what I think is the elephant in the room when it comes to like a lot of leftist debates. When talk, we're talking about a lot of activism and stuff is that at the end of the day, our economic system is now used as a means of oppression and more so than a means of oppression. I think our economic system is inherently the real government that we actually live and deal with because and, and I think that's actually where you get the nature of the Democratic Party and the Republican Party and even like the religious mentality in language when you hear stuff about like, you know, the magic hand of the market mm-hmm. because – at the end of the day, you can vote in, you know, Democrats, Republicans, and uh, and they actually – I forget which college did a study on this, but, you know, they said like, you know, across the board, if 1% of Americans want something that has like a 31 or 33% chance of passing, 99% of Americans can have – you know, it's still 33% chance, but corporations, one-to-one ratio. Mm-hmm. I think that's – I think that's because money is the actual functionality of our government and the major mechanism that is used to control the American population is this comprehension and engagement with money. And what I mean by that is it doesn't like you can talk about electing, you know, Joe Biden or Nancy Pelosi or even AOC, but at the end of the day, what governs your life on a hour to hour basis? Like, are you going to eat today? Money. Are you going to have a place to sleep today? Money. Are you going to have any ability for R&R? Money. And in that functionality, you can literally see and control the movement of the population, how much they can engage within society, and the ability for them to actually learn and grow and actually affect the system that we live in. And if that system is inherently based upon an economic structure where money is the key and formidable factor of that system, you have to play ball within the system to begin to have any type type of say within that structure itself. And I think that element right there has limited the very comprehension of a lot of things because of the fact when we talk about activism, we talk about politics, the Democratic Party voting this, that, and the other, we're thinking of it in a mechanism of like, oh, I can enact change in this level in that way. But when it really comes down to it, I think the economic structure in and of itself is the major mechanism of what we're fighting. And I think it's the major mechanism that is actually the force of governing because at like because and 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 this is the last point and then i'd love to get your thoughts but 
I mean, if you really look at anything, everything has been privatized. The, the, the major job that the Democrats and Republicans have done since been in government the last 30, 40, 50 years is transfer the actual systems of power and control from the actual population to the private market. And what I mean by they, they transferred uh, – yeah, no, they transferred the mechanism of control to the private market. We had a bill of rights, a privacy. Well, guess what? Everybody's on Facebook. So if the NSA and FBI wants to look into you, they just got to go to Facebook. We're talking about the Federal Reserve was you know created as a mechanism to actually put bankers or banks in charge of the literal currency of the United States. And I think this mechanism in and of itself is kind of not seen in a, in a very concrete way that it makes it hard for people to – Fully and inter interact and engage with the system that we're actually involved in, and I think it actually makes activism or effective act activism that much harder. Yeah, I think that's all completely right, Sean. I think you know a that was basically the subject of my radar from last Thursday. The study you're thinking of is that 2014 Princeton study, and that's what we are saying, and that's what Bernie was saying when he used to say we live in an oligarchy. It is true that the preferences, the political preferences of the working class majority. Uh, don't matter at all in terms of democratic outcomes. Um, and we don't live in a democracy because the number one predictor, the only predictor really of, of a policy is actually going to pass is whether it has ruling class support. So the question I think becomes, how do you make the broader public aware of it in those kinds of concrete terms? And to be able to say things like that without you sounding like a conspiracy theorist or getting someone like, um, uh, what's his face? You know, a misfit black girl guy, Jason Johnson, um, oh, yeah. going in on Nina Turner saying, what do you mean it's, it's Bloomberg is an oligarch? That's crazy talk. An oligarch is a Russian man in a bear hat. Da, 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 da. You know, you, the, 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 the question is, can you get those faux populists on the right to talk, start talking in those terms? Can you get conservative voters who are attracted to the idea of a populism to kind of see the insidious nature of neoliberalism in the way that we do? And part of the issue there, I think, is that they have – while they're very skeptical of the government and they see a lot of its flaws for the reasons that we do, they also have the skepticism that the government could be better or could ever work for the people because they have been so indoctrinated into the idea that the solution to those problems is more free markets. Um, and it's difficult to prove the alternative because neoliberalism has spent the last you know, 30, 40 years dismantling the state and making it reflect those stereotypes that at one time were propaganda and what they have seen the only functional thing from their perspective that they see is private industry especially since i think the democratic party has never done a good enough job of singing its own praises i remember early in covid i discovered that there was a swimming pool in my old neighborhood and it was built during the new deal and it was great and i uh, I found this map that will show you where all this New Deal projects are in your neighborhood. And there's all this amazing stuff, amazing infrastructure that, of course, is now, you know, 80 years old or whatever. And I wish that there were plaques. I wish there was like a national day of celebration. I wish that when it went down in the subway, there was a sign that said, like, the federal government did this for you or something, you know, like you should be proud. There should be civic projects that we engage in on a semi-regular basis. I've talked about whether or not we should have, like not military conscription, but some kind of pre-college program that we all do to force us ourselves to live in different parts of the country and engage with people outside of our cultural and socioeconomic milieu. Because I do think that's that's what's missing because your diagnosis is, is, is spot on. 
Yeah, it's and, and you're 100 percent right. Like I literally have a picture of the Brooklyn Bridge right behind me because mm-hmm. like that that level of ingenuity, the complexity is is beautiful. I mean, even language like I'm making variations of sounds and my sound variations are going to people's heads and they're reproducing thoughts and ideas in their mind. Like that's amazing. It's beautiful. And, you know, the complexity of that is what has allowed us to create the world around us. You know what I mean? Like everything around us was first in our imagination. And then we talked about it, thought about it and created it. But I think again, you know, it kind of comes back to the capitalistic, you know, nature of our system. We have taken everything, put a money price on it. And it's the, it's the way we think about everything. And I think that that, and I think it's been done purposely, you know what I mean? Like fail on purpose. So people learn to not expect anything from yes, you. Yeah. hundred percent. What's it called? Planned obsolescence. But when, yes. they, when it's uh, cell phones or whatever. Yeah, no. I, and, and it's the same thing with cars, but it's, but I, it's and it's so ingrained within our entire culture and society. I think it's like Eric to the point that I've actually came to the very real conclusion this is kind of recently that the Democratic and Republican parties are actually acting like religious mechanisms of evangelicalism towards the American public because mm. of the fact that they are in every element of human and social life that we engage with. Their entire presence is a is kind of a marketing ploy for the actual American system or the American narrative. And the thing is, their oppositional force. So because of the fact that they're oppositional forces, they literally within their very kind of religious uh, metric have the very condition for the enemy and they are both the enemy, but they're both under the same system of control. And, and I think that kind of limits our entire ability to think or see anything because of the fact, again, it's around us like air, but I don't want to take up. No, I appreciate time. you calling in. One of the people in the chat is like, you know, there's a book that I think you might vibe with called The Communist Manifesto. Manifesto. Everyone knows my stance on reading. I'm not a fan. Yeah. No, I'm I'm being <laughs> I'm being a glib bimbo, obviously, but yeah, like I, I think that what you're saying is a lot of what attracts people to left philosophy and Marx and et cetera. Uh, so right on, right on, my friend, and thank you for calling in, Sean. Most stuff, and you have a good one, Brianna. I actually I worked with you a little bit, or we at least you know bumped uh, bumped elbows in the the force of the vote slack. I know it kind of fell oh there, yeah, I remember that. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank 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 you for your support on that, comrade. Most All right, stuff. take okay. care. You have a great one. All right, Martin with the cute dog photo. You're up next. What's on your mind? Hey, Bree, how's it going? Can you hear me? I can hear you. Okay, fantastic. Um. I'm glad to be on again. You're right. My dog is very cute. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it can't be denied. Um, I have two kind of quick things. Um, one is, I mean, just on this inflation thing and the, and the Fed rate hike, I, I mean, if anyone is still doubting at this point, like whether or not like Joe Biden and the Democratic Party is, is on your side, I mean, it's so... It just seems so beyond the pale to me for, like, people in the administration to be saying, oh, yeah, we're going to increase unemployment. <laughs> like, that's the solution to yeah. uh, our economic woods. It's just it's so bizarre. And, like, it. I'm and suppress wages. <laughs> yeah. It's double no, whammy. But <laughs> definitely lower the wages, uh, you know, increase unemployment. This is how this is what Democrats do. I mean, you know, it's right out there for everyone to see. I don't know. Personally. I mean, I know you're already on this tip, but like anyone who's voted for Joe Biden at this at this point, it just seems. I mean, you gotta expect something. Like they're like this is ridiculous. 
Um, so that was my first thought. But yeah. the, the second thing I wanted to chime in on was, uh, you know, I love I love Richard Wolf. I, you know, he's he has such a a way of speaking so uh, concisely about complex economic topics. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing that I like him for in particular, though, that I feel like it's funny on his interviews, this doesn't come up that, that often, but that Democracy at Work um, organization that he runs is kind of in, is tangentially in my industry. Um, I set up employee-owned companies mm. um, through, like, buyouts uh, from by the workers. Uh, hey, that's cool. Thank you. Uh, yeah, turns out you can actually do good things with a law degree. <laughs> <laughs> love it what's the name of the what's the name of the company you don't have to um, say if you I, want to be anonymous i i yeah i'd prefer to keep my yeah don't firm. don't worry about it <laughs> don't worry about it yeah, yeah but um i do uh, i don't know how much rich how much professor wolf would consider me a kindred spirit but because uh, i set up employee stock ownership plans mm-hmm. um but um, it is a buyout mechanism. It's not as democratic as the worker cooperatives that he does. But, I mean, I, I'm i surprised there are actually 14 million workers that are worker owners under employee stock ownership plans. Huh. Um, a lot of these are 100% worker-owned companies. A lot of them are big companies like uh, King Arthur Flower, Public Supermarkets, huh. Um People don't know much about it. And, and I. But Bernie was, I mean, you are probably familiar. Bernie has some employee stock ownership plan stuff in his uh, platform. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was big um, into it. The labor plan yeah. low-key was the most interesting and kind of radical of all of Bernie's policies. But it's so, like, dense and nobody understands any of it. It didn't get any play. But I remember taking it upon myself to do one of those, like, campaign video info videos about it. Because it was so, once you started reading it, because I had to read all of it, and I, I, I didn't want to read it because it seemed kind of dry. But once I get un, got into it, it was by far the sexiest one. It's, yeah, his policies were great. He was actually going to speak, and we have a national conference for the, the ESOP Association in D.C., and he was going to speak at it this year. He, he, there was some conflict. I don't know if it was COVID-related or something, but, but he was the keynote speaker. Um, so he's real good on it. Mm. But people are so unaware of it, and it surprised me. But Richard Wolf, you know, he's dedicated his time to setting up these worker cooperatives. He thinks it's valuable. I mean, personally, I think it's kind of – you can see it as a kind of like an enclosure movement for the working class. Like it sets up a new material base that people can, you know – I form their identity around, right? Like as a worker owner, but it's not politicized at this point. Um, so I don't know. I, I guess I just wanted to mention it and I don't know if you have any further thoughts on it and, uh, you know, get it on people's radars. And, and it is something that I know Richard Wolf is very passionate about because it's what he spends all his time doing when he's not doing it. Uh, yeah. So the first time I interviewed him, I think for the show, uh, he spoke at length about that. Um, and that was over a year ago. You can go back and find that interview. And, 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 you know, I, I think you're right that we should talk more about it. The reason I asked you where you worked was because I was curious about the potential of getting someone either, you know, from your job, but also these, um, somebody who is at a worker owned place to talk about the process and, you know, whether or not there's a sense of political identity around it. I was curious, you mentioned Publix. Didn't Publix, isn't Publix one of the folks who um, is declining to, is it Publix who's declining to carry the COVID vaccine for kids? 
I'm not sure. It wouldn't surprise me. Like they're not wholly employee owned. Um, they, not, I think they're not that employees can't make that decision. I'm not trying to say that it has to be a corporation to have that kind of a take. I mean, a lot of people, we covered this on Rising Today, people just aren't even showing up. Parents, there doesn't seem to be a huge appetite for kid vaccination right now. So, you know, it doesn't wouldn't surprise me if they just decided it wasn't worth the squeeze. Yeah. I, I don't know anything about it. I just, you know, Publix is almost like a cheap trick on my part because <laughs> they, they are an employee-owned company, but it's, it's not... I don't think it's a majority and they're just very big. Right. So, mm. uh, so I, I always mention them because like people know who they are. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, but like King Arthur flower, I think a lot of people know them too. And they are, yeah, totally. that is a lovely We're thing on. to learn and will affect my, um, buying choices going forward. Although I do tend to work, do they have any good gluten-free flowers? I tend to word, um, that red mill guy with the beard. Bob's, Bob's, Bob's. also employee. Hey, excellent. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, I'll I'll get up and ch- get up and check my gluten free <laughs> pancake mix when this call is over. <laughs> All right, thank you. Sorry, I, that was just me laughing. I, oh. no, I appreciate. Thanks for taking me. Thanks for let me. Uh, you know, thank anonymously you, my industry. And, uh, <laughs> no, it's always good talking on here. So uh, we won't dox you, Martin. Thanks for to my dog. I'm gonna I'm gonna tell Missy uh, my dog that, that like. <laughs> tell Missy they're the cutest. <laughs> All right, <laughs> have a good one. All right, AK, you are up next. Unmute yourself and let me know what's on your mind. Hello, hello, hello. Can you hear me? Hello, AK. I can, loud and clear. Okay, good. Sorry I've been so whiny on the chat. I've been meaning to get on for a few uh, call-in sessions now. Not at all. What is on your mind? Well, actually, I'm a bit torn because I quickly wanted to reassure my comrade, Eric. Uh, He had come on earlier in this session and spoken Mm -hmm. about how the American left seems a bit immature and he seemed a little bit jaded and I wanted to sort of uh, you know speak from here in India which is that here we have sort of the opposite problem which is that you know the big m word that gets thrown around a lot and calling about mobilization and organization mm-hmm. I mean we've got that down pretty much uh, historically but because we have such little electoral appetite for any leftist conversation um, nothing takes you know, so I mean, until like, un- uh, and, and nothing short of like a clean overthrow of the actual state system, like in a post state world, maybe, you know, this could work out. But in the absence of that, because there is, I mean, I'm in fact quite envious of where American leftist discourses, I mean, however little it's made it to the electoral system. Uh, mm. So, I mean, I think there's a bit of greener pastures, you mm. know, at all ends. Uh, but no, the thing I actually want to discuss was uh, uh was you <laughs> <laughs> sorry <clears throat> uh, so uh, a couple of podcasts ago which was is wokeness ruining the left mm-hmm. but also i mean i guess threads of it came up in the bimbo one as well mm-hmm. uh, there was an interesting question that you'd posed to one of the interviewees which was i mean the question like you'd asked it um, in order to build coalition with potential, um, you know, with people who could join it, um, you know, forsaking things like, you know, correct pronouns or so as to not put them off, right? And so, and how, like, at a conscience level, you were wrestling with that. Yeah, or I would say it's more, it was more at an interpersonal level, uh you know, if I see, can I, is it fair for me to make a presumption if I meet some old man in the park? 
that I should refrain from asking him his pronouns in a way that I I might not if I'm doing a seminar at Wesleyan with young people and people who are fully presenting across the gender spectrum. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, one wouldn't want to be presumptuous. Yeah, I understand that. I mean, this, the sort of the question of, like, this is the kind of stuff I wrestle with all the time, not professionally, not like you at all, mm-hmm. but just like, you know, internally in terms of my conscience. And, you know, it, it occurs to me that uh, the material coalition, I mean, the coalition of people fighting for material dignity, which I suppose would be the broad leftist movement, uh, is actually, I mean, it's invoking such a small i mean it's invoking the basest side of all of us i mean our material needs are in fact the least interesting thing in any of us and so while that is the necessary coalition building obviously it's i mean it's almost i mean so for instance this you know the conversation was centered around the subject of trans identities in that podcast and i'm gonna neither of us being trans i'm gonna spare you going there but i am <laughs> Thank autistic. You. you know i'm mm. autistic <laughs> i'm autistic so, I mean, that I feel would be safer ground for me to speak on. And so what I find, obviously, is like similar to sort of gender essentialization that might exclude trans people. There's a lot of neurotypicality that is assumed in just, I mean, in just language, let alone mm. anything else, really. Right. Uh, and certainly, I mean, you know, at, at a sort of, like at a, on principle, sure, I am excluded in some ways, but it's, I don't even expect in a where if 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 left if if leftist conversation is going on, I mean, which is a political, it's a political term, it's a political identity about material dignity and so on and so forth, and overthrowing capitalism. I don't even expect necessarily that to be a safe space for other parts of my identity because mm-hmm. all that all that is being called upon from me in those spaces is that I, you know, that I also care about material dignity for all. So it's almost like expecting that kind of deep solidarity. Like, like for instance, if I, you know, if I see someone like you, like who I would characterize like an intrepid reporter doing God's work, you know, and trying to build movement, uh, which is, uh, which is very different, which is a very different tone, uh, which is a very different sort of thing to do than to luxuriate in, how fun it can be to be along alongside uh, with like-minded people, you know, which is what you mm. alluded to in the in the bimbo episode where you spoke about all you know various American um, people. I'm not very familiar with them, but who all seem to be having a great time, you know, and <laughs> you know there seemed to be some envy because you were down in the trenches and they were just getting to be themselves. And I think, I mean, those are sort of uh, the two that's kind of like the Faustian bargain, I suppose, of movement building, where I mean, basically, all of this to say that I would definitely want to put your conscience at ease as saying that I don't think deep solidarity is possible when um, when a coalition is being built just for these material gains, which is what is necessary right now. And it is only possible in these smaller subsets where I don't know, where like, I know, rent defaulting, you know, drugs having autistic, disabled, trans, orgy having leftists together, you know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I know that you shouldn't read the comments and, you know, not to make decisions based off of them. But there is probably, it is probably true that I would do more episodes like the one with Katie or um, even the one with like FD Signifier or others where we've talked about cultural topics. Mm-hmm. If it weren't for getting blasted every time I do it with, Oh, uh, the world's collapsing, and this is what you're talking about. 
And I think, you know, I think that that's really, it's frustrating one because it's like, okay, just did like 15 episodes in a row on like Somalia. You didn't click on those. You didn't like them. You didn't watch the video. I can mm. see the numbers. And also now you're mad at me <laughs> for talking about this thing that's, that people obviously find to be interesting. Um, but you know, it's also frustrating because I, I think I agree with you. I do think that, you know, we talk about this when we talk about Michael Brooks and, and some other folks who've done that good job of wedding the mm. entertainment and the levity with the more specific political ideological project. And I look when I, if I'm going to be honest, the shows I listen to in my personal life, mm-hmm. I have a fun element. I, I, I respect mm-hmm. what happens over at the dig. I don't listen to the dig. Like I don't, unless there's some guest that's so good, it's too dry. Like I I'm tired. I want to listen to Katie make jokes about stories about penises in the Washington post and you know her her whole like ongoing thing with Matt Taibbi or Aaron Mate about cannibalism, and then then once I listen to them, you know, go back and forth for twenty minutes about something stupid, then I'll listen to the twenty minute interview with whomever it is. You know, I want to listen to yeah. Chapo. I want to listen to someone who can make it interesting and fun because otherwise it's like twenty four hours of just like plugging the news into the side yeah. of my brain. And if that's the case for me, then it's going to be the case for other people. So, like, let me let me do a pop culture episode every now and again, guys, without getting on my case. <laughs> but I, so I'm very surprised that, I mean, that you get flack for it. And you should totally invoke the comments. Because, yeah, the other thing I wanted to take up with you is a bone of contention. Which mm-hmm. is that in the call-in episode where, uh, after the bimbo one, you spoke about how you actually expected to, you know, get a lot of flack from all of us. Because you did, like, this this episode and not let's say a more substantive one whatever that means Mm -hmm. and i you know i mean i think here i mean even right now you're citing michael brooks and katie and all these people michael brooks i was a big fan of etc um i'm just what i'm spotting and you know this is now me getting into presumptuous territory so you know i apologize in advance it's almost like uh you know in any such like i am consuming you in the same way you are consuming these people you spoke of, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it is it is that kind of asymmetric relationship where you're creating content and I am a nameless, faceless listener. And so, and definitely in this contract, you know, it is a cult of personality. However much your the substance of the conversations you create is obviously what I'm largely in for. But over time, what I am coming back for is certainly the personality. In this case, that would be you, right? So, uh, uh, it occurs to me that you indulging more sides of yourself i i don't see how that would disappoint a listenership since the listenership is created on the basis of this kind of personality i mean i don't know if i'm making any sense no you are making sense i think that what's prohibiting me from doing that more like the line i'm always trying to straddle Mm -hmm. is that there are some things like i'm a human being you know i don't walk around you know, being, you know, camera ready and not using profanity and not, mm. you know, indulging in kind of petty, stupid humor. I watch trash reality shows and enjoy catty, horrible human behavior, just like everybody else. Do you know what I mean? And, and, and so there's a, there's a world yeah. where my ability to advocate in good faith for a, a like, a, and to model good behavior kind of becomes compromised by my, sitting around and talking about, oh my God, did you see that Nini's plastic surgery has her looking like shit? <laughs> like, do you know what I mean? Like there, there's a, li- there's a limit yeah. to how, 
you know, I think real I can be. Good you if, are. Yes. To, if I still want to have a credibility or certain kind of respectability in other kinds of spaces. And I, I, when I was watching Crystal on Bill Maher, I was thinking to myself, God, it's just there's so few people who in, in our space, you know, I don't, and this is an indictment of mainstream media, not of the people in the space, but there's so few people who are kind of deemed to be acceptable to go on a show like that who seem credible and can be invited on the show like that, who have the pedigree because they care about pedigree and credentialism. And Crystal has it. She was an MSNBC correspondent. She has a huge hit show. Like, Uh you know, she looks the part, she presents professionally. You know, there's so few of us who kind of fit that mold that it makes me feel like there's an obligation to maintain that. Even though there's a part of me that wants to be like a neck beard irony bro podcaster you know and talk about you know my men's seat you know like there's a part <laughs> there's a part of me that just like i i fully want to blow the blow the lid off the whole thing and go full intimacy like aggressive intimacy <laughs> the dating episodes i really want to do the kinds of things i'd really like to talk about you know but but that's, that's what i'm always thinking to myself i understand a close friend of mine recently said announced with much passion that if, if a choice between being seen as ditzy and smart, she choose ditzy every time because that she can deliver on and smart <laughs> is on her good days. <laughs> oh, I love that. That's so relatable. Yeah, like hit it with some low expectations and then if you exceed them, great. But whenever, sometimes I'm like, God, I hate when people yeah. try to, wep- sometimes people try to weaponize like the Harvard stuff at me too. Um, I've had people in, in interview situations bring it up and it's not a compliment. You know what I mean? They're kind of being passive aggressive, like uh-huh. with it. Like, well, you went to Harvard, so <laughs> that. Like, and that's why I do. I do feel like there's some freedom in preemptively saying, like, I don't claim to be. I, I was never a good lawyer. <laughs> I don't claim. Uh-huh. Don't def, don't point to my legalistic my legal expertise because I have none. You know, I'm reading yeah. the cases and figuring it out and googling shit just like you guys are. <laughs> I mean, obviously, I'm exaggerating a little bit there, but like, I I would prefer to start from low expectations and then we'll figure out together because otherwise. It can be paralyzing thinking that you already have to know everything and do no, such I a great job all the time. No, I can imagine. And it seems like a paralysis that one just has to choose to not have because I suppose the commenters will always be there. I mean, in fact, like to me, when I when I listen to less, less substantive episodes of yours, obviously I certainly enjoy them in, uh, so much more just because they're funner. Mm-hmm. But also I think it's, I think, uh, one's worldview is always spilling out, right? I mean, it, mm-hmm. it, 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 it's not like, I mean, all of one is always at play, right? So if I'm listening to like a dating panel or anything that you would do, uh, just in your, or even for instance, your interaction with Katie recently, where she kind of turned to your legal expertise and you pushed back on why that was being assumed <laughs> of you. You know, that, uh, <laughs> that tells me something. And so to me, that certainly paints a richer picture and, to me, it seems like a personal journey you need to kind of be on to, like, let that not make you feel like your credibility is compromised. But at the same, having said that, I see how every left American leftist who has embraced their fullness has also become very navel gazy and is just talking about, like, other leftist people. I mean, you mm-hmm. know, they've stopped, they, you know, they've got not got their eye on the prize anymore. So I see that it's a very tricky line to walk. <clears throat> yeah, well... I appreciate your support and it w- we'll continue to experiment with it. Uh, I can't tell it. Katie... One, so one, one last thing. Sure. Sorry. I just, I just, this is just a, I just want to put a speak, uh, potential interviewee in the suggestion box. Sure. Uh, this is 
uh, I don't know if you've heard of Dr. Devin Price. Uh, they happen to be trans, but uh, more pertinent to what we're discussing, or more pertinent to your podcast, I would say. They've written, they're, a mental, they're a mental health researcher, and they came out with a book about uh, the laziness lie. Uh, laziness mm. does not exist. And so it's a sort of it's a mental health take on, I mean, capitalism and what it's teaching people and how they need to unlearn it. And I love that. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I say that all the time. I'm following them right now. Mm-hmm. Oh, OK. 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 Then then you already know them. Got it. Uh, and uh, because I knew that you want to be speaking to trans people, but not on trans issues. So I thought this could be an opportunity. Yeah. I mean, obviously <laughs> both, but I don't want to just trudge, trudge up every trans person in the chat and force them to <laughs> de- defend whatever stupid yeah. thing is happening at any given moment. So thank you for that. I love, I love, love, love the, the book subject. I always say I don't believe in lazy. I don't believe mm-hmm. like there's like two lazy people on the earth and then a whole bunch of people with undiagnosed stuff going on or or like legitimately stressful conditions um so thank you for calling in and i will definitely uh check out dr price absolutely have a good night with your mom bye-bye thank you by the way i know i said i had to stop at 5 30 but she texted me saying that she's going to be in traffic and her eta is 6 15 which is why we're still going so you guys can thank dc traffic for us still going uh, let's see, let's see, let's see. Um, John, what's on your mind? Not a very, not a very female heavy chat. The, the women are paying attention during the workday, apparently. <laughs> how are you doing, John? Hey, I'm well, how are you? I'm doing well, thank you. What's on your mind? Um, two things that sort of tied together. There was one about price fixing and one about somebody earlier mentioned the, like the food crisis that's impending. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm in Iowa. So these things are not unrelated. They're actually mm-hmm. the same thing. So like to start about price fixing, I'll just give an example of right around here. My local town had a gas station once open up that dropped the price of gas in town by like 10 cents and everybody had to come down to meet it, which means that 10 cents of every gallon you bought wasn't going to labor, wasn't going to capital, wasn't even going to natural resources. It was going somewhere else. They're mm-hmm. essentially renting you access to gasoline. It's like a form yeah. of rent extraction. So that's a local level one. And then you have the state level one, which has having to do with ethanol subsidies here. And I'll get back to that. And then this, like the national level one has to do with not longshoremen, but people who employ longshoremen. And this is what I wish Richard Wolf would talk about a little bit more. It's like, you can speculate just like on soybean futures, pork, you can speculate on transportation futures. So the same people who own the, the port will bottleneck it by calls on their own company. And then when the guy comes into port, they say, Oh, that's only $10,000 per crate to unload it. And of course they're going to pay it right then and there because they have no other option in that moment. And then you get your own price gouging twice once for the price and once for the call. Jesus. And, and that, yeah. So, and that's another thing I got from Giannis Verifakis. And then there's the international level price fix, which is like, you probably do know about OPEC, which mm-hmm. exists. Why? So a p- supply hiccup in Turkey does not affect the price in Belgium. It's a price fixing organization, which is rent extraction again. So this ties back to last time. Like none of these four things have anything to do with Joe Biden or Donald Trump or COVID or Ukraine or any of that crap. Like it's just price fixing at the end of the day. So to backpedal to my state, Iowa, and the ethanol subsidy price fix, the state level one, 
this is why the food crisis is going to uh, get worse because you know our topsoil is completely destroyed by monoculture because the mm-hmm. farmers that live around here have no choice they, nothing else is profitable we the same people all i have to do is go 5 miles outside of town and you get these trump 2024 signs it, mm-hmm. it's freaking me out and these people are, I can't stand these people living off the government. Meanwhile, their fat subsidy check is in the mail for the corn. They're living off the government, mm. right? So they're totally hypocritical. And if this, you, I, I know you don't like to read, but you're aware of the Grape of Wrath and the Dust Bowl in Oklahoma. And I like, am. Don't, we only, they made, me, don't, they made we, me read in middle school. I couldn't get out of it. <laughs> right. Well, the only reason we don't have a Dust Bowl here is because it's more humid than down there. What we have is a runoff. Mm. So you get this like topsoil that used to be six feet deep and now it's about six inches deep and can't exist without ammonia-based fertilizer poured on it, pesticides, herbicides. There's no roots because all the trees are up. Instead of doing strip tilling, they do full tilling where every square centimeter is tilled. So there's no even grass roots to hold it in place. Mm. It all runs into the creek, big algae blooms, kills all the fish, Mm. fucks up the whole ecosystem. All because of monoculture, which is all because of subsidies for ethanol, high fructose corn syrup, Mm-hmm. And just the sponsorship of I mean, the bulk of it still goes to places like Arizona to feed cows, right? Mm. But it's all it's it's all shit, and it's going to go to shit. It's going to get worse, and I guess that's the end of the story. Look, I know that that's a bleak picture you just painted, but I'm so grateful to you for painting it because the complexity. I don't know. There's something I find to be weirdly grounding in the complexity of these things. Cause sometimes you can get into this trap where you're talking in very vague terms and we all have our kind of rote narratives as leftists. And that's good when we're communicating outside of our group, because most people just need the introductory lesson. But for, you know, the people who are here in this space and who are like listening to the podcast and subscribing at a certain point, it's like, yeah, we know, but stuff like that, like your, the detail, and the kind of <laughs> intersectionality right of what of you described. Face. Yeah, that's literally. And, and there's so many opportunities there, right, for communicating. You know, th- that's a, what you're talking about is a community that has a lot of needs and who also hasn't had anybody yeah. to draw the parallels between their needs and the needs of other people in the and country. We, we're losing population because yeah. it's the only game in town. And the farmers aren't the ones getting ripped off of the subsidy because, you know, it's really the ethanol company that mm. harvests all the, all the profit. And we're bleeding people, which means, yeah, it's just a, it's a, it's a terrible picture. I wish instead of fetishizing um, Liz Cheney, that liberals would go to the, the, these parts of the country and and shine the light on the the genuine constraints and oppression that people are under in red country. Instead of like going to some random diner and and like romanticizing some. Uh, Trump voters aesthetic to really actually talk to them about what the root causes of, of some of these issues are. Some of the wiser ones who believe in it, like they don't want inheritance tax, but they look at their own land being, and they yeah. realize now that they're destroying it. It's starting to get into their head. Yeah. It's not as good as it, it was. It was and the yeah. per acre value compared to the price. Isn't what it was not in the long term. Well, maybe this is why look, Maybe maybe Professor Wolf isn't wrong when he says that we could be on the tipping point of actual change because it it does seem like the contradictions of the system are presenting themselves to folks all over the place in exactly the ways that you're describing. Maybe Wolf it won't be wrong. like it's a just green. I expect too much, like you. Like you're yeah. never, I, I was like, oh, more, more, give me more. It's like yeah. your job to save the world. I know that you guys can't do that on your own. It's just, well, like, look, nobody else is smart enough, but you. 
Bree, you have to. No, say. you guys stop. I, I do feel you. You are making me think. Okay, I know I said I was kind of over environmental episodes because everything's so bleak, but maybe it's worth between the Glenn Greenwald point about some of the um, um, you can stop this farming issues. Yeah, I mean, That's but what do you think? I mean, it just it does seem like. You you got to do the political work of not seeming like you're just attacking rural America because that's how it's going to get framed. But if if you sell it to them like okay for why, why will Iowa never uh, make pot legal? Why? Because if these farmers suddenly found it more profitable to grow even just non psychoactive hemp than corn, then they would start doing that, and that would cost Chevron money, and that's why Chevron is always going to keep people in our state house that are anti weed, people that they don't even have to bribe oh, in the ordinary wow. way. This, you know, like it's like the ordinary huh. sense of corruption is is old world. The ideology is the new corruption. They're they're already corrupt by the time they get there. Not corrupt, corrupt, but ideological, mm. which means your brain is permanently broken, right? So what happens when you talk to your when you're to you talk to your peers like this? Oh, they don't call anymore. You know, you're like uh, your your fr- your friends and family. You mean? Yeah, you know, they don't. Nobody wants to really think about stressful things. They want to talk about. I'm sure they've moved on from The Walking Dead by now, but that's like they. I, I don't want to talk about The Walking Dead. You know? <laughs> is it that good? I Damn. I just don't. I just don't. <laughs> like whatever it is now, I don't know what it is now, but like I just obsess about this, and you know, you already knew that. But uh, yeah, I mean, it, he just makes such good sense to me. It's hard for me. I mean, do your family is your family in agriculture or they is, don't read? Hmm. That, that, you know. I mean, we have simpatico there. <laughs> Just yeah, I, I, I know. I, I, and, but come on, you pretend you're a bimbo, but everybody knows that you're really smart. And it, it just to concur with earlier, like you're the best interviewer alive for t- two reasons that I can identify. One is you don't let people dodge the question. It's, I'm not the first person to say that. I stole that from somebody else. And the second one is you're just your magnanimity. Like you, you can put tolerate. Like Andrew Sullivan, that was a really good example of like nobody else could have made that productive except for you. And like, or even me yesterday or the day before when your chat wants to put me to the guillotine, you'll still really try to dig at the, and get to the substance to see if there's anything there. Wait, what did the chat so do like, to you? I don't even remember. Oh, you know. They're, they're, <laughs> they're, they're, they're loyal. They're loyal. They want to protect you. Because I'm being an elitist and a gatekeeper and a know-it-all saying that people should read books. Oh, yeah, that was you. To, yeah, that was me saying, oh, and maybe if you read, we wouldn't have to reinvent the wheel for the hundredth time. Well, look, let me, like, let me oh, throw you a bone. That. Last summer at some point – no, I think it was during 2020 when I was unemployed. I was reading. And I uh, read Pedagogy of the Oppressed. And the thing about that book – there, there's a preface preface to it, um, but it was written by someone who I think is still alive, and I wanted to see if they would come on the podcast at some point. Because they're, they, what they, the point they made is that the book is slim, but not at all dumbed down in its language. Sure. And when he talks to other academics, they always say things like, oh, you know, who can understand this? And are you going to give it to your college level students or whatever. And he's like, I gave it my 13 year old kid picked it up and read it and picked up everything and like completely got it. And we, that we underestimate the sophistication that's required one to understand even sophisticated writing. And And also level of education that makes us dumber and exactly. Those people to the last guy I gaze at the navel and I think about (laughs) bullshit and I was like, I'd like to disagree with other leftists, but it matters to me what you would do with power. If you had it, it matters to me because you just said somebody with shrill identitarian nonsense up there. Like, I don't want it. I don't. Yeah. I hear you. And look, it's got a class conscious, 
like agrarian, you know, what we're talking about mindset. Yeah. Very grounded, very practical. Yeah, well, look, I I never want to be mad at someone for being passionate and caring a lot. Uh, I know that a lot of people don't like, you know, the tone of some left commentators. And I think you can have substantive agreement, disagreement about what people say at some points. But the tone thing, it's like there is a reason why folks are attracted to someone like Jimmy Dore, who is speaking angrily in a like way that I think is commensurate with the level of frustration that's out there in the world. Yeah, I, I get it. I get you, it. You know, so I wasn't, I'm not going to come for you. I'm not going to, if someone kind of is like taking it out on me or, you know, or whatever, like it is like, I get it. Like, I get it. You're a much I, more subtle thinker than Jimmy Dore though. Well, you know, but there's a lot of, he has a huge audience of people who like, like that style. And I, I can, I can appreciate that. And as long as on the, on balance, he's pushing people in the right direction, which I know some people are going to dispute and that's fine. Then I, I got to say, if he wants to keep beating the drum on Medi- Medicare for all, God bless him. I, I'm happy he's Even doing he's it. Right for the, I wonder this about this a lot. It's like because my argument against the bimboism, it's like, oh, you got this long list of things. I'm pro this, pro this, pro this. It's like, but if you're right for the wrong reasons, then you're going to be very easily kited into overreacting to something that's really very innocuous. And then you're going to make that the focus. You know, like I just extolled the virtues of your Andrew Sullivan interview. But, but. What's the largest line item cost in America's poorest people? I was talking about housing, right? Mm-hmm. None of these people who can't afford rent are wringing their hands about trans people in sports, okay? Mm-hmm. Who are you talking to? Yourselves, an echo chamber? Talk to a swing voter. They don't give a shit, you know? Like, yeah, we definitely they, need a housing. I tweeted today with, for suggestions about a good housing expert. Yeah, I was talking about I was I was talking about how forgiving I am of Anna Kasparian just because she spent enough time on what I think is important, you know, like an issue-oriented person. But none of these people I was a substitute teacher here in town for three years, and none of these 25 to 30-year-old women who are teaching primary and and middle school ever heard of CRT until they Mm. were accused of doing it. They do Mm. not know what that is, and all you have to say in response is, it's a fake right-wing issue. Nobody's doing that. But when you have, even as brilliant as it was, a whole hour about it with Andrew Sullivan, that means you're talking. It doesn't matter what you say about it. The fact that you're talking about that is already a kind of a loss. Because it's just not who you're talking to. I I think that's fair. I think that, you know, there's a world where, let's say, and this has happened to me. I'm asked to go on a mainstream show, which has a huge audience, and to which I could potentially evangelize my worldview. But they pick a topic that is not going to give me the space to do that. So, you know, recently, you know, I've gone on Megyn Kelly's show before and I will go on Megyn Kelly's show again. But last time she asked me on, she wanted me to talk about um, Biden's health. And I'm like, I don't well, I don't want to talk about that. I don't care. Hill geriatric care facility. You know, like I, I me and my other leftist friends can sit around and joke about Joe Biden. But I'm not going on your platform and talk about something that isn't even the reason I don't like him. You know what I mean? That's just not yeah. the reason I don't like Joe Biden. And this is pointless. This this is not a good use of my time yeah, people or, or my credibility for not being a great user of the English language. I'm like, but there's really a lot yeah. better reasons right. to not like him than that. Right. And, you know, I won't. It, there was another major mainstream show that wanted to have me on um, during Black History Month. And I did like an hour long pre-interview and they kept asking me these questions and my, you know, about what I thought was the problem with black America and all of this stuff. And all my answers, you know, my, they tied back to the Biden administration and what could be done. And they wanted me to answer in terms of Trump or they wanted me to say things like, well, black people, you know, 
we have a stigma against therapy in the community. And what we really need is to deal with our cultural demons and epigenetics and like, da, da, da. I, no, what black people need is money, like everybody else. <laughs> like, yeah, but, but and to the extent they need therapy, taking money from them. Right. And, and it's the black people need black, the thing that black people need therapy, they need it to be in a Medicare for all program because they need free access to mental health just like everybody does. Absolutely. And so they, eventually they call me back and they were like, well, we don't think that it's fair for you to be you know, criticizing the Biden administration when there's not someone from the other side to give the other view. So we'll have you back at another time when it's more explicitly political. I'm like, it's Black History Month. It's literally, like, and I wasn't being like, I was dumbing, I was like toning it down a lot. I you know, just saying, you know, generally speaking, you know, Biden promised to cancel student, you know, he, they were like, what's that, what's facing black America? What are the issues? I'm like, well, education's one black people have more student debt than everybody else. And black Joe Biden, you know, has promised to cancel all HBCU debt and has declined to do so, so far. So that's something that I think activists should be really focused on, but no, they want me to talk about how great it is that black lives matter is painted down 16th street. Yeah, and it doesn't matter what you say about it. The fact that the conversation is there and not about the fact that he lied about forgiving student loan debt is already – that's the point. Yeah. That's the uh, Jean Baudrillard simulacrum simulation, 1940. Like it, that's the point is the moving of the conversation to where they want it to be, not yeah. what you say. That's not the point. Yeah. It's where so, it is. So that's to say I agree with you generally speaking, although with Andrew Sullivan – and, you know, some experiments you can argue don't work, but I think that there is – it's worth sometimes dethroning key tastemakers that are opposing your argument, right? There's, I think That's there's some utility in, in demonstrating the emptiness of individuals who disproportionately are pushing your, the counter-narrative to what you're selling. And so it's not just CRT that Andrew Sullivan talks about, right? He's been in the public sphere for a very long time advocating a kind of politics that I very much disagree with. So if I had an opportunity, let's say, to talk to a pod safe guy, like I don't mean to compare the two. I don't think the pod safe guys are like anywhere near as ideologically, you know, problematic as Andrew Sullivan. But they reach a huge audience. They tend, I think, in some ways naively and not even purposefully to do that kind of neoliberal uh, apologia that makes people feel like the world cannot be better. Uh, same with like Ezra Klein. Like I would love to have a conversation with Ezra Klein and I think it would be worthwhile because there is a subtlety. Like he seems very smart. All these guys, everyone thinks they're very smart and they defer to them, defer to them, defer to them. And sometimes just asking them a series of questions that explode their belief system can cause a lot of folks who are their adherents to maybe look look for other people to listen to. It's like the really Jordan Peterson thing. That's true, but I know that you know that people who voted for Bernie Sanders in New Hampshire might, are the same people who might vote for Donald Trump, right? And in my state of Iowa, for example, fewer people voted for Donald Trump than voted for Mitt Romney. Now, this is a state that went for Obama both times, right? And then there's a vote for Donald Trump and but it's it's there's a 10 point gap of people who just don't show up. So it was not the case that they turned out in droves for Donald Trump or we're in love with him or something. It's that nobody on the left is going to show up for uh, a war hawk corporate identitarian like Hillary Clinton. Right. So to your point about who you want to dethrone and like it's it's still the question of who you're talking to and. 
what they think about. And it, it, there's immense value to people, to pretentious navel gazers like myself. That interview with him was amazing. But like who who can't pay their rent is listening to that and, and going to show up for the left because of it. Well, look, I would say that most people who can't – well, well, let me not say that. One, I sometimes – misjudge the diversity of the, my audience. So I do think that there are people who can't pay, pay their rent. I have met people in real life. I, when I was, when I went to Brown here, here's the irony. <laughs> when I went to Brown to talk to Glenn Lowry on his podcast, I was in the hotel lobby of my, the next morning I was in the hotel lobby recovering from some food poisoning. Although it probably looked to any casual observer, like I had just gone on a bender the night before because my friends had brought to the hotel Pepto-Bismol, Gatorade, uh, Advil, you know, vitamin water, and had spread it out all over the table in the Sounds lobby. Like <laughs> and I was, I was hunched over, like, trying to get fluids in me without vomiting like I had been doing for the last three I hours. I to drink with you, but I'm way too far away. <laughs> but I, I had not been drinking, I promise. So I'm, I'm sitting here in this embarrassed, like, state, just trying to stand up, and, and help, my friends are going to help me make my flight home. And... Uh, a guy who works at the, there's like a little coffee shop in the front of the hotel. He walks by like, you know, carrying a box and he's like, oh, hey, you're Brianna Dre Gray. And I like, look up. <laughs> I'm like, oh, hey. <laughs> and who knows what he thought of me? But it's like, he kept saying it was so, he was such a sweet guy. He kept saying like, oh, don't mind me. I just work here. And I was like, well, that's the whole point. Mike, it, it, you yeah, are the ideal member of my audience. Like, it, it, I'm so heartened that you listen. I, I don't give a shit. you very much. Yeah, like, and and it was and it was lovely. So I, I do want to say, like, I don't want to um, misjudge the audience. I think it is very diverse, but I also think that if the goal is to like radicalize the population, generally speaking, a podcasty audience is going to skew navel gazy, and that just yeah, well, is what it is. Here we are. <laughs> here we are. Um. Well, look. I have really enjoyed this. I know that I took, I said I was going to do all these short and sweet and I lingered with you for a while, John, and the people I, are going to be. I appreciate that, but I apologize to the people who. No, no worries. Over. Jonathan, you know, you're a hero and you were right here at the top of the queue. Part of why I feel comfortable leaving you in that first seat is because I know that you are so measured and committed, but I don't want to take advantage of your patience. I definitely will call on you next time. I'm so, I'm so sorry. This has happened a couple of times now, but. It's 6.12. I got to tidy up my house a little bit and light a candle before my mother arrives. I see some new faces in the chat. Uh, AO, um, Revolution, and I hope to get to you next time. I'm sorry this was a bit of a short episode. Please do like the video on Bad Faith of the Richard Wolf interview, even if you already listened to it. Those likes are very helpful to the algorithm. Please do, you know, check out the radars. If you liked this Richard Wolf episode, listen to my radar from – uh, I guess day before yesterday, no yesterday, because it was basically like I interviewed Richard Wolf on Wednesday, did the, no Tuesday, did the radar on Wednesday. And it was basically a summary of our conversation. So if you want to distill it for folks in your lives, send it to your, you know, agrarian re or your Iowan relatives. You've got that. The wolf. is, And we will go out. Oh gosh. I didn't want a narrated version. I thought it'd be cute to go out on Peter and the wolf. Here we go. Here we go. <laughs> Uh, thank you all. I really appreciate this community and keep the faith.
On a branch of a big tree sat a little bird, Peter's friend. All is quiet, all is quiet, chirped the bird gaily. Just then, a duck. How big does the cushioning feel in Skechers, Mexico?